ho, 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 Merry Christmas. Saturday, I put on a Santa suit and asked kids what they wanted for Christmas. Did this over at a church, and parents would bring their kids in for pancake breakfast, and uh, some of them would stop and visit me. And it was amazing to see how they responded to me as Santa. Some of the children were dead afraid of me. I mean, of me, Grandpa Vardaman. They would come in and look at me, and if their parents tried to move them towards me, they would plant their feet, and the parents couldn't get them to move. Some children had enough confidence if mom carried them. So somewhere, there's a bunch of pictures of mom sitting on the big chair next to me. Let me show you. There it is. There's a picture, a bunch of pictures of mom sitting on the big chair next to me holding kids, and those kids were fine as long as mom was there. And then there were some, there were some who seemed to think that we were old friends. They came in the door, pulled off their coat, dropped the coat, and ran to me with arms open wide, Santa Claus! I'd never seen them before in their lives. They seemed to love me. It was fun. And then, one more, some of those kids that were afraid went on into breakfast, and after a while, I looked over and I saw them peeking around the corner. They were looking to see what was going on, and then when they got confidence, they'd move out away from the corner and wave at me, kind of timidly. I think I could have won them over if we had enough time. Didn't have enough time. When I asked the children what they wanted, some of them really knew and could tell very quickly. Others had to ask mom and dad, what is it that I want for Christmas? So just you know, in case you're wondering what to buy, brothers or sisters, nephews and nieces, here are some of the most popular requests from Saturday. Hoverboards. Kids want hoverboards. One boy said he wanted a skateboard. And I said, what kind of skateboard? He said, one with wheels. <laughs> so I guess what he meant was not a hoverboard, a real skateboard, I guess. Uh, an American Girl doll, those were popular. And one little girl, you'd, you'd never think of this gift. One little girl, I said, what do you want for Christmas? And she said, a toothbrush. <laughs> okay, that's a smart gift. She's gonna take care of her teeth all of her life. Watching those children made a tremendous impact on me. A lot of fun, made a tremendous impact. I couldn't stop talking about it to my wife later, and it reminds me of the way we approach Jesus. Some of us are afraid and keep our distance. Some are curious but won't come close to Him, but some run to Him like an old friend, and there is never any distance between them and Jesus. And some, in the case of coming to Jesus, some, as in the end of John chapter 11, some take the opportunity to attack Him. John chapter 11 tells the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. This is the chapter where that verse is located that a lot of students memorize. So like in New Testament survey class, the prof says extra credit for memorizing a Bible verse. And they say, got it, prof, John 11:35. 35. Do you know it? 
Jesus wept. Yeah, that's, it's right there in John chapter 11. When the chapter opens, Jesus is in um, Bethany beyond the Jordan, about 20 miles from the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and he gets a message saying that Lazarus is sick, and the message implies, you'd better come quickly or it'll be too late. And Jesus stays where he is two more days. What does he do for the next 48 hours? The Bible doesn't tell us. It isn't notable. But what we see, what we see that he's doing is that he's setting the stage for an act that will bring glory to God, which is why he came to this earth. So after learning that his friend is seriously ill, he stays where he is two more days, count up the days. It took a day for the message from Mary and Martha to get to Jesus, one day. He stayed two more days in that place, three days. And when he takes off to go back to Bethany near Jerusalem, takes him another day, four days later. Four days after the sisters made a 911 call, Jesus finally shows up. A tradition among the Jews a little later says that the soul actually leaves the body in three days. If this tradition was in circulation at this time in the first century, then nobody in that party, not Mary or Martha, not the friends from Jerusalem that had come to mourn with them, nobody believed that a miracle worker could ever bring Lazarus back from the dead. It was irrevocable. He wasn't just dead. He wasn't just mostly dead. He was truly and forever dead. And Jesus came too late. Has God ever come too late for you? You cried out to God when the worst thing was happening or it looked like it was about to, heaven, about to happen and you believed and you boldly said, God, come and intervene and do something about this and nothing happened and the worst did occur. And there you are feeling frustrated and angry and hurt and maybe wondering, is there, is there a God at all? Or maybe wondering more seriously, Maybe I'm just not the kind of person that God loves or that God likes or that God responds to. As Jesus approached the village where the sisters were, somebody from his entourage raced ahead and told Martha, Jesus is here. Now, grief uh, processes in that day expected Mary and Martha to stay home, not to be out in public. But when Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she slips away from the home and maybe hoping that nobody sees her, goes and meets Jesus on the way. She can just barely contain her grief and she says to Jesus, without any recorded greeting to him, she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Um, Maybe she's accusing Jesus, maybe she's rebuking Jesus, but it occurs to me that she might be saying, Lord, we sent for you too late. Uh, Lazarus died the very day that we sent you a message. If we had recognized how serious this was and called for you earlier, you'd have been here. And if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You'd have done something about that. Maybe her grief is greater in part because she believes that she and Mary were too late to summon Jesus. 
It doesn't seem to be a rebuke by itself. It seems to be something more because in verse 22, she says, but even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask. It's a statement of faith. She's um, sad and sorrowful that Jesus didn't come, but listen to this, she still believed in Jesus. This is a statement of faith. She doesn't understand the circumstances, but she knows Jesus, and she knows that he can be trusted whatever the circumstances. Have you discovered that yet? Someone said that there are three kinds of faith. Uh, Historical faith, which is uh, faith that allows us to believe the facts of the past, like Abraham Lincoln is the 16th president, George Washington is the first president. There's uh, temporary faith, which is the kind of faith that is uh, perhaps a first awakening. Maybe it's the kind of faith that uh, some of you had and that I had when very young, three, four, five years of age, we knelt with our parents perhaps and said a little prayer that invited Jesus into our hearts. Um, I'm not saying that that's an unimportant faith, but it is a temporary faith. It's not enough for the rest of life as many of you have, have discovered. And then the third kind of faith is a saving faith, which is the intentional entrusting of one's life to Jesus for salvation from sin, which issues in a new life. The intentional entrusting of your life to Jesus for for salvation from sin, which issues in a new life. This is deep and profound and perhaps ever-growing. When you examine your faith in Jesus, what kind of faith is it? How do you approach him? Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. And again, she gives a statement of faith. I know, Lord, he will rise again at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus says something, get this, Jesus says something that must have been surprising to Martha. He says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Count the word believes in this verse. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This chapter, this book, is an invitation to believe in Jesus with your whole life. And here Jesus says, before the resurrection is an event, it's a person. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the answer to all of the greatest eternal problems and all of the greatest temporary problems of life. If we are sinful, Jesus is forgiveness. If we are sick, Jesus is health. If we are lonely, Jesus is friendship. If we are lost, Jesus is direction. If we are dying, Jesus is everlasting life. And notice, it's not so much that he gives you exactly what you think you want. I didn't say if you were poor, Jesus is wealth. We all know too many poor Christian people who never seem to have what's needed. The issue is not that Jesus gives you exactly what you want at that moment. The issue is that it's Jesus. 
He is greater than the circumstances. He's the answer. Circumstances are secondary when we are all in with Christ. Standing beside Martha, Jesus gives the order, take away the stone. Now you understand we're not in a cemetery like we have around here, right? Where people are buried underground, covered over with sod and so forth. We're in um, a hill setting and there is a cave that has been appropriated or dug for use in burial times and they've rolled a stone over the grave to seal it and to keep the bad smell inside. And Jesus says, take away the stone. It's unthinkable, it's unbearable. But they took away the stone. And Jesus prayed and he basically said, Father, I know you hear me, you always hear me, but I want these people to know that what's about to happen is by your power. And then Jesus turned towards that gaping mouth of a cave and said, Lazarus, come forth. And to the astonishment of Martha, who thought the resurrection was a long ways away, and Mary and the others, Lazarus comes out bound in the grave clothes, but he's alive. And the unspoken question in all of this is not, do you see Jesus has raised the dead? He can raise the dead. The question is now, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe yet? Jesus asks us today, do you believe? Do you believe with your whole life? What if you can't love God with your whole life until you believe in Him with your whole life? What if you can't believe in Him with your whole life until you love Him with your whole life? You know this passage, Mark chapter 12 is one place it appears in the New Testament. Greatest commandment, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and your neighbor as yourself. What if this is as much about how we believe as it is about how we love? What if we have to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and believe in Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Not just believe He's the Savior and is going to take me to heaven someday, but believe that He has a claim on your whole life right now. And another one, sort of a strange way to hear that last phrase. We understand what it says when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, but what if we change it to say, believe in your neighbor as yourself? Work with that. If you believe in Jesus with your whole life, one of the ways you'll demonstrate that is by taking his plans for your plans. Today, God is speaking to some of us who have a cautious kind of faith. We want him to save us. We don't want to go to hell. But we're not so sure we want to entrust him the whole of our lives and our future. This may mean, this may mean believing him with our whole life, may mean laying aside our plans if they don't match with his and making his plans our plans. Here's what I've discovered in life through my experience and through watching the lives of others, God's plans for us are always better than our plans for us. Our plans for us protect us and give us a cushy future. 
His plans for us may expose us to challenges and difficulties and at the time grow us and deepen us and make us richer in the Spirit and closer to Him so that we come to know Him with our entire being, our entire life. Remember, circumstances are less important than God's presence. And when you take His plans for your plans, you're walking into His presence in a greater way and with a greater joy. And when you follow His plans, it's likely that He is going to ask you to do something that, that comes with a price. He always, he always seems to ask of us something that is costly and valuable to us. Well, it makes sense. He says in another place, come follow me, take up your cross. I'm not talking about the kinds of crosses we wear around our necks. You know He's calling us to come and die with Him. And He calls us to express our followership with Him by paying a price because maybe that's the only way we can tell that we're all in with all of our lives. He knows whether we're all in or not. He doesn't need us to pass a test, but we need to pass a test. This is what causes some people to keep a distance between themselves and Jesus. They have their future all planned out, and they're afraid He's going to wreck it. What's God calling you to do? I think, I think that God is speaking to some people in this auditorium and is saying, I want you today to promise me that you will be all in with me and that my plans will be your plans from this day forward. Well, how do you know it's God speaking to you? How do you know the plan you hear is actually from God? Let me show you a simple formula. I know it's a formula, and we can talk about whether it's um, uh, exhaustive or not, or a good idea or not, but uh, let me share this formula with you. This is from an old guy, Martin Wells Knapp, lived in the 1800s, and he was working with people who were wondering, how can we tell the difference between the voice of God in our head, the leading of God, and the devil? How can we tell the difference between our own thoughts and God's thoughts? And Martin Wells Knapp said, uh, look for a convergence of four things. He says, when you believe God is calling you to do something, He's showing you His will, number one, it will be scriptural. It will be compatible with what we know of God's truth in the Bible. So. God will always call us to love others. He will never call us to hate others. God will always call us to go, perhaps to sacrifice ourselves so that others can receive the gospel. He will never call us to stay by ourselves and keep our wealth to ourselves and build fine, fancy monuments to ourselves. He, he will always call us to do what is moral and ethical and right. He will never call us to do what is immoral. Don't think that God has given you special permission to do what's immoral. Some people claim that that's not from God. Number one, it's scriptural. Number two, uh, Knapp says, if it's from God, it will be right. It will be right. You have an inborn sense of right and wrong, fair and unfair, just and unjust. And when you hear this leading in your heart, uh, you will know instinctively there will be a sense of witness within you that says this is the rightest thing you have ever heard before. Number three, it's providential. If God gives you a leading saying you ought to do X, 
Uh, he will also provide an opportunity for you to do X. God will never ask me to be an NBA star. You can see why, can't you? I mean, age and build and coordination, all of those things. And if I become convinced God wants me to be an NBA star, I'm just deluded. It's providential. God will provide a way. And finally, reasonable. Now, this is the one that uh, stumps a lot of people and we need to talk about more, but we don't have time to talk about it here today. So if you're struggling with a call from God, whatever it is, whatever uh, uh, God's plan for your life, and you're wondering, is it reasonable and you want to talk about it, let me know. I'd be glad to talk with you. What God calls us to do will make sense to a God-ordered mind. Doesn't mean that there won't be people who say, are you sure? That doesn't you're giving up such an opportunity and such this or that. But if it's from God, it'll be reasonable. As reasonable as it was for Jonah to go and preach to Nineveh, as reasonable as it was for Abraham to leave his hometown and go to a place that God would show him. So here's Martin Wells' naps, four checks. And notice, you can't do just one of them. I found it in the Bible, so it's right. No, Knapp says all four of these need to coincide. John 11 is all about believing in Jesus, and he's calling us to believe with our whole life, our entire future. Will you do it? Is he speaking to you and calling you today? Team is going to lead us in a closing song. Stand with me as we all sing together. And as they lead us, if God is speaking to your heart, if this is what he wants you to do and you're convinced that he's saying, follow me, make my plans your plans, if that's your desire, as the group sings, come down and pray at the front, tell God your intention that you are all in, that you will follow him with all of your life.